Well, we just sang together more, make me more and more like you. And every once in a while, it's just good to revisit, why did we open the word? I, I think you know this, but when Jesus prayed with his disciples in the upper room, he said, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. It's the word of God that sanctifies us. It's the word of God that, that forms in us the very character of Christ. And so when we pray, Lord, make me more like you, we know that the effect the way that that happens is the effect of the word. And so when we give our attention to the word of God, when we come under its authority, it will form in us the very character of Christ, slowly and steadily over time. So we give ourselves to the word, and I want to invite you to do that with me as we turn to 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 12. We're a brief series on called God Is. Attributes of God. Dealt last week with the holiness of God. God is holy. This week we're talking about God being love. God is love. So 1 John 4, 7 through 12 for our text this morning. Let's look at that together. I'm going to read it. encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles. It will help you. Let's give our attention to God's word. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of God. I invite you to pray with me. Ask for the Spirit's help in this time. Father, as your word lies open before us, we want the effect on our lives to be more, made more like Christ, even as we sang. This word is food for our souls. It is daily bread. I pray, Father, that as the proclaimer, that you would guide my thoughts, control my tongue. Be gracious to us for the sake of exalting you and Jesus, our Savior, your Son, among us that as a result we may be more like him. So give us all that mind and attitude and expectation in each of us that we're going to hear from you, not a mere man. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A great movie. I'm sure most of you have probably seen it. One of one of my, uh, the most oft-quoted lines in that movie, Princess Bride, 
It's when Inigo Montoya says to Vizzini, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. I love that line. Uh, and we've often used that. Perhaps you've, you've brought that up. You keep using that word and for something other that's in, than it's in the movie. But that comes to my mind every time I hear how contemporary culture talks about love. We're talking about God being love. But I'm just going to give you an example. An example. Without a cultural context, the slogan, love is love, would be quite obviously true. Yet, if you're paying attention to what's going on around us, you know that that phrase has been infused with meaning that biblically informed Christians would have to utterly reject. To, to, even, to, to most people that, that have even a, a basic belief in the existence of God, it would be inconceivable that God would be anything but loving, right? And that is true. But what does it mean that God is love? That's the question. And I would contend that that is a truth that we can not rightly comprehend apart from, apart from God revealing it to us in his word. And so we've opened the book this morning. We've opened the scriptures to see what the word of God has to say. Now, in this first epistle of John, the apostle John wrote this. Uh, you see a lot of similarities between the way he speaks and, and the things of Jesus' teaching that he extracts and, and shares. You can see a lot of similarities. But in this first epistle, John has much to say about love. It's just five chapters, 105 verses, and the word love shows up 45 times within 26 verses. And in all of the Bible, when you think of how many mentions the word love has, that's number three in order John's Gospel has 39 verses. Song of Solomon has 37. So you can see in such a tiny little book with such a concentration of the word love, he's got much to say about that. Well, the passage we read together tells us where love comes from. It shows us what love looks like. And it tells us what is required of us who know God and experience his love. So as we give our focus today to the fact that God is love, I want us to consider that truth under three headings, just summarizing what I just told you. Love originated. Second, love demonstrated. And third, love imitated. Love originated, love demonstrated, and love imitated. Love originated. It is uh, inevitable that when observing, I think you know this, when observing the far reaches of the cosmos, and if you should get to do that through a telescope, or, or if you happen to be peering at the components of a cell in a microscope, the observer is often, especially when you spend some time around it, the observer wonders and maybe even in attempt to answer the question, where did it come from and how did it get here? We're fascinated by it, just observing creation leads so many to want to answer that question. Now, I was, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about a man who once envisioned himself to be a cleric in the Church of England, one Charles Darwin. You may not know that about him. But he rejected the doctrines that, uh, that the church taught and eventually concluded in his seminal work, you may know this, The Origin of Species, that various life forms evolved from less intelligent life forms over a period of many million years. 
So one who is a consistent evolutionist, they have to conclude as a result that if humans physically evolved, then by necessity, everything else about human experience evolved as well. And I will say this, including love. That's how the world sees love, as an evolved response, an emotion. That's how the world sees it, but that's not what the Bible says. Verse 7 tells us, we read this, love is from God. Love is from God. It's the origination of love. And that's true because before there was anything, there was God. Genesis 1, you know it, in the beginning, God. Before anything, God. God, self-existent, always has been, always will be. In the beginning, God. Then there was creation. But, but the amazing thing, according to the apostle, is that love is so, so very much bound up in the very nature of God that he says, says in verse 8, we read this, God is love. God is love. So, of course, we have to conclude that the implication of this truth is that before the universe was created, love existed. That is not how the evolutionist views it. That's not how the world views it. Love is something we kind of figured out over time. and It's kind of a natural response. Now, when God called a people to himself, he affirmed his love for them. So he exemplified it. Deuteronomy 7, 9, the Lord tells them, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God's self-declaration is that he is faithful. He keeps his covenant of steadfast love. Now, again, if you think like the world, like an evolutionist, you're going to define love by what human desires and passions are. And then having defined love in that way, then what you do is presume that upon God. And again, my purpose in this series of messages is so that we have a right, a biblical understanding of in God's self-revelation. What is God like? What, what, how can we describe God? When we say God is love, we have to understand it not from the perspective of the world imposing their view on what God is, but in fact, what the Bible and God's Word, in fact, reveals about Himself. So, if you define God by your experience, His love, by your, by your experience, you're presuming something upon God, and ultimately, that's idolatry. I referred to this uh, moments ago, that expression, love is love. And you see it on t-shirts and with a rainbow flag. Objectively, it's, it's a true statement. Love is like love, like a car is like a car, and a flower is a flower, right? Love is love. It's true. And rainbows are nice too. They're a biblical reminder of God's covenant, right? But you put them together and it's infused with meaning, right? It has been co-opted by the LGBTQ and whatever other letters they've chosen to add. It means that the individual gets to define what love is. Love for them is same-sex unions. Love is affirming transgenderism, and I know it's hot topics in, in the culture. My concern here is that professing Christians who have not been well-grounded in the word of God, they fall into this trap 
all the time. There are people that I dearly love who question God and say, how can, if God is loving, how can God not affirm gay marriage? Love is love. What's a question of origin? Love is from God, and God is love. And if love is from God, then love has already been defined by God. Love has to be consistent. God's love, and love of any kind for it to be true, has to be consistent with God's moral character. Love has to be consistent with God's holiness. It has to be consistent with his justice, but also with his grace and mercy. The definition, I'm sure maybe some of you had this read at your wedding. Here's the definition of love from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now, if we were just to stop there, I mean, I think the culture would go, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But then we get to verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Well, maybe the culture can agree, but what's wrongdoing? And who gets to define that? Well, this is God's word, so God gets to define that. Love rejoices with the truth. Well, whose truth? Well, there isn't subjective truth. There is only one truth, and that is God's. He declares what that is. And in light of that, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things towards the end. Towards the end, the purpose of loving like God loves. This is how God commands us to love because this is how God loves. God does not, we get this, God does not rejoice in wrongdoing. So, so to affirm or rejoice anyone's desire for anything that breaks God's law is not love. According to the slogan, love is not love. So we cannot celebrate idolatry. We cannot celebrate coveting. We cannot celebrate greed and pride and sexual sin. Rather, love, God's love, rejoices in the truth, God's truth. And that love longs for all to know and live according to his revealed truth. Can you see how this works, brothers and sisters? When you love someone the way that God loves, you don't love them to affirm them in their sin. You love them to leave it. So before you look around, when it comes to the matter of love, you've got to look up. Before you can evaluate what love is, you have to look to God. And when someone says to you, love is love, you might say, I think I know what you mean, but actually God is love. And he gets to define how it looks for us. So, what does it look like? What does love look like? And that's my next heading, love demonstrated. Well, if you're like me, uh, you've probably found great benefit in YouTube, it's an amazing tool. I've learned all kinds of things from videos. I have learned how to disassemble our Dyson vacuum and put it together. I've learned how to change the cabin air filter on my car. Do you know how much they want to charge you to change those out? $16 filter. 
If you go to the dealership, they're going to charge you 200 YouTube saves me a lot of money. I'm grateful for that. I've learned how to smoke a brisket. I've learned how to smoke baby back ribs and even a meatloaf. And all of these things I've learned because they have been demonstrated for me. I, I get it when I see it, right? And we, I think we learn that way, right? We learn by seeing somebody do something. There's such great power in having something important demonstrated to us. That God is love. That's an eternal truth. But we understand it because God has shown it to us. Verse 9 of the text we read, In this, God, sorry, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. That's not the definition. That's not the standard. But that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God was made manifest. It has been shown. It has been plainly recognized. It has been thoroughly understood. That's manifest. The text tells us how. God sending his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So there's an implication here. You see that apart from, from the son of God, we would not live. We would be condemned. That's the default position, right? We are, we stand in ourselves as condemned people, lost. So not only do we get to understand, as in, in an intellectual sense, God's love, but we get to understand it because we are direct beneficiaries of that love. In the Old Testament, the law, Deuteronomy 6.5, the law of God commands us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now, if you think about your own life, I think about my own, I think, well, I have not done that perfectly. I have often loved myself more than God. I have often put things in place of God as things that I cherish more, even for moments. I can't say that I have loved God with perfectly, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might. And the fact is, no one does this. No one perfectly loves God. And because we fail at the very primary command, the very thing that would guarantee us fellowship with God, because we've failed at that, we stand condemned. That's the default position. But then, according to this verse, but then the love of God meets us in our inability to love him. It meets us. And Jesus steps into the world he created and he becomes one of us. He demonstrates to us his own love for the Father by his own obedience. But he also demonstrates his love for us by taking upon himself the full consequence of our sin. Even as I was thinking about this, sitting there while we were singing, I don't want this to be a merely academic piece of knowledge And I, and I struggled in my mind to think of how can I 
communicate the profound weight of the glory and the beauty of the love of God. God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that's, that's a sacrifice. A sacrifice that averts or absorbs wrath. So there's me. There's God. I'm a sinner. Wrath is coming my way. And Jesus steps in. I got that. Now, the fact that God hates sin and God is wrathful towards it, I know it doesn't sit well with people who want to define God by their own concept of love. Again, many, many in our world would say, well, if you love me, you will affirm me in my choices. And so they conclude that if God is love, therefore God loves everything I love. So when the Lord revealed himself to Moses, Moses wanted to see God. Moses wanted to see the glory of God. Maybe you remember the story. The Lord reveals his name, but also his character. And he, he tells Moses that he is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, it'd be nice to stop there, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That seems to our minds like a contradiction. God forgives, but he doesn't clear the guilty. God demands justice, but he forgives. And what God does is, you know this, and this is what our verse is talking about. God gets that justice in the substitute, his own son offered up as the propitiation. We deserve God's wrath. We've earned it, as it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What I've earned is eternal condemnation. But the glorious truth, and this is, this is how the love of God is made manifest. The undeserving, vile, filthy sinner like me, and if you're rightly admitting yourself in that camp, God shows his love for us in that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There are few people in this world I would die for. But pick out a convicted criminal who's on death row. I'd be hard-pressed to find any reason at all to die for that person. And yet... In a world full of convicted criminals who stand condemned before God, Jesus stands in our place. Christ died for us. And so we get the free gift of God, which is eternal life, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ, we are the beneficiaries of God's indescribable, glorious love. Well, we do our best to describe it, but really to grasp the full measure, words fail. 
but we have it. It has been given to us. And we know what it means to love. And because God's love has been manifested to us, and we've experienced it, it's my third heading, love must be imitated. You can't be like what you don't know, right? But if you love something, you, you tend to want to imitate it, right? If you love someone, you tend to want to be like them. And whether, whether that's in some narrow sense, like, like some skill, you want to get better at a sport, you're going to watch the ones who are great at it. It's true of anything. It's been said, and you've heard it, that the Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Well, our passage, the passage we read begins, Beloved, let us love one another. Now, I've been focusing on the fact that the passage says that God is love. The implications of the fact that God is love is that it has implications on our lives. It has a demand. Beloved, let us love one another. He starts, Beloved, you are loved. The beloved of God, let us, having been loved by God, let us love one another. Now, before he continues, John explains who is included in the us. That's important. He, he tells us who's in the one another. Beloved, let us one, love one another. And, and this matters immensely because if God is love and if God defines what love is, then we must love on his terms. So if we know we want to know how to love. We have to look to God. But not only look to God, it's not merely an intellectual thing. You see, if you have not experienced the love of God, you cannot truly love as God loves, as John explains in verses 7 through 8. Look at the text again. Whoever loves. So I'm taking it here that John says, whoever loves truly, whoever loves in the way that God has called us to love, whoever loves has been born of God, and knows God. And here's the other side. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Anyone who does not love truly in the sense that God loves and calls us to love does not know God. So that logic should be clear to us. Whoever loves, that is to say, whoever loves in the way that God loves, and I'm repeating myself, I realize this, that one has been born of God. Born of God. What is that? Well, John explained that truth in the prologue. This is the opening paragraph to his gospel in John. He says there that the one that truly loves is the one that has received Jesus, the one that has received the word of God who became flesh, the one who has truly believed in his name. Those, John 1, 12 and 13, those children of God who were born, not of blood, not nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What we're to take from this is that this is a supernatural work. This happens in the life of a true believer. It is supernatural. It's not something you can do to yourself. It's not something you can make of yourself. You are born of God. Of God. Again, not the will of man. Not the will of flesh. Not of blood. You're not just born into this physically and then you have it. No, this is supernatural. 
It's a radical change. The old self that does not know God is then transformed, changed, made new. The Apostle Paul describes it in in 2 Corinthians 5.17, a very familiar verse. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The old that doesn't know how to love. The old that, that rejects God. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. That new that has come is being in Christ. That's not merely a statement about membership in a group headed by Christ. Rather, what that is is a new ontological reality. You become a new creation because you are and will forever be united with Christ. Your own being, who you are in in your essence, your own being is bound up in Christ. Why? Because he bore your sin at the cross. That's a connection. That's a supernatural connection. But not only that, you have been raised to a new spiritual existence in Christ's victorious resurrection from the grave. So you're bound up in Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ, born of God. The old is gone. There is new. Jesus died your death so that you might live through him. There's no in-between there. There's no, he dies for you, but you don't live. No, he dies for you so that you live through him. And then back to our text in 1 John. Beloved, if God so loved us, that is to say, in giving his son, if God has loved us, that is, if God has loved us by sending his son to rescue us from the consequence of our sin, then, then, therefore, this is the outworking of that, we also ought to love one another. And in case we forget how this works, a few verses later, we didn't read this part of the text, but in verse 19 of this same chapter, we love because he first loved us. It's God's initiative, right? Now, I'm thinking, even as John is writing this, I I don't doubt that that he had this memory of of sitting at Jesus' feet or listening to his teaching, walking with him along the way. He recorded Jesus' teaching in his own gospel account in chapter 13. And I don't doubt that John had a memory of this where he heard Jesus say, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And he explains how. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in that verse in John's gospel, two benefits to loving like Jesus. It's both experiential, something we get to have, but it's also testimonial. First, the experiential. I think how amazing, how amazing to be part of a community of God's people to both love and be loved by others the way that Jesus loves us. Just that's, that's what being part of a local church is, to both love and be loved by others just the way Jesus loved. Imperfectly, I get it. But we're commanded. We've got to live that out. We've got to imitate Jesus' love. That's experiential. But, But the second benefit, 
that's testimonial. If we love one another like Jesus loves us, it's a witness. It's a confirmation that we actually belong to Jesus. It's proof that we're his disciples. Jesus said this, that loving one another, all people, that's not just the church, all people will know that we're his disciples. Loving one another. If we do that love right, if we love like Jesus, people look at that and say, they're Jesus' disciples. That should be the hallmark of what we are because we have been loved by God because Jesus laid down his life for us. And therefore, the outworking of that is that we love one another. And I think that's what John is saying in, the, in verse 12 of our text. He says, this is, it's a strange sentence. No one has ever seen God, semicolon, at least in the English. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That word perfected, made complete. So no one has ever seen God. We grant that. You can't see God, but you can see the continuing evidence of his love manifested in sending his son. So other people can see something of what God is like. You can't see God, but you can see something of what God is like when his love abides in his own people. Again, this is supernatural, and it is ongoing. It's not just a one-time application. No, it's, it's, it's because one who is a new creation in Christ Jesus, you now have, and this is the supernatural reality, you now have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. The very reason you're spiritually alive, the reason you were born of God, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. God resides in you. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 4, 5, when he talks about this. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now, I know the stuff in me on my own, you know, if, what I bring before God, what you bring before God, if we stand on our own, what we bring before God is not pretty. And all we have to do is, is, is think about those moments whether you're driving on the highway, somebody cuts you off, and a thought in your mind. And even if you do nothing and smile, the grumbling inside, there's the unugliness, right? We, we're fighting it all the time. And those are just everyday things. The resentment we feel with our loved ones. What I bring to God is ugly. But what God gives to me is his own spirit. The spirit has been given to us. And because of that, his love has been poured into our hearts. So, so when we find those moments when we're, when we're tempted and the thought comes, you know, respond with kindness. That's not your credit. That's the Holy Spirit. And when you have an opportunity when faced with persecution, 
when you have an opportunity faced with suffering, some of our loved ones here suffer disease and hardship, when instead of being embittered, you trust God and you give praise to Him and you give testimony to others? Where does that come from? That's the love of God poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit's been given to you. So because you are loved by God, because Jesus became your propitiation, because the Holy Spirit has been given to you, love like you have been loved. And and God has not left us without specifics. So we're not lost for what to do, how to do it. The Ten Commandments are just that. They're a summary of how we love God and love others. I don't know if you know this, but, but when God gave the law at Sinai, understand the purpose of them. They were not meant to be how people could find their way to God, as if God put out the list and go, hey, if you can do these things, you're in my camp. No. Before God gave them the law, God said, you're my people. I'm your God. Then, the law. They were given to show what mattered to God so his own people could imitate his divine love both back to him in worship but also outward to fellow man. So the Apostle Paul explains it in Romans 13.9. So, so if we're unsure, how do I love my neighbor? How do I love my brother or sister? How do I love? The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another, sorry, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet or any other commandment. They're summed up in the word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to keep perfectly, but it's not hard to understand. So you and I, we love by putting God first and honoring him as he has revealed himself. But then that love for God is proved out in how we behave towards our fellow man. And I hope you get this. It is a hateful thing. It is a hateful thing. Even though the world would say it's about love, it's a hateful thing to be unfaithful to your spouse. People say they do it for love. No, it's all hate. You've just deceived yourself as to what love is. It is a hateful thing to destroy another with your words. Well, you might say in your mind, well, well, he deserved it. She deserved it. It's hateful. It is a hateful thing to steal, to kill. It is a hateful thing to even be obsessed to possess what rightly belongs to another. Love is not doing those things. Easy to understand. I understand. Challenging to do. But... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So it's not mere avoidance. I hope you understand this. It's not mere avoidance of these things that that is how we're to love. But you have been given supernatural grace and strength so that even in the most difficult circumstance, we can see how we would live out the word of Jesus when he said, 
again, the most difficult circumstance. And he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says this, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's a big ask. But it's one that God empowers through the Holy Spirit in us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In that moment, when somebody's persecuting you, treating you unkindly, even killing you, it is possible by the grace of God to love your enemy and pray for your persecutor. And that will prove, as Jesus said, that you are sons of your Father who is in heaven. Well, that's what God has done for us, hasn't he? We were the enemy of God. We were still sinners. We were vile. But in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we love like God loves us, we show ourselves to be his children. God is love. And to know God is to know that he is love. And what is love? That's that essential, eternal aspect of God's being that runs through every other aspect of his nature, inseparable from God. So when you think about love, brothers and sisters, when you think about love, think about God. Love apart from God is merely self-serving sentimentality. God is love, and that means that God's love was before all things. God has already demonstrated his eternal love in giving his son to save us, and having known and experienced that love, my simple exhortation, let us now truly love God and others. Let's pray. Father, words fall short, so painfully short of grasping the immensity and glory and the beauty of your love. And yet, inasmuch as we can understand these things, we who have looked to your Son, crucified and raised, so that our sins could be forgiven, we, we know it, and we know you because of it. And so, God, I pray, as your people, Lord, may we be marked supremely as people who love like you love. Father, I feel my shortcomings in this. And this word, as much is for me as it is for anybody else. Be gracious to us and bless us that we may love like you love because you are love.
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.